0: Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to celebrate Easter with you this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially, want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Becky was saying, small groups is a great way to do that. So we'd love to invite you into that stuff. Um, love to as well invite you into our study in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way through John's Gospel for the last seven months or so, and and you, if you join us for the first time this morning, you join us for the best part. We get to the climax of the whole story this morning. Right, but if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's it's important to understand that like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's Gospel is kind of like a biography or like a documentary about Jesus' life. It tells us the story of his life and ministry. But, but like the other Gospels, they're not documentaries that are like any other ones you've ever seen before. John's is especially unique because he, he not only tells us that Jesus' story begins way before his physical birth, He tells us that Jesus' story doesn't end with his death. In fact, the cross is not even the climax of John's gospel. It's not not the end of the story. It's not the most important part. Jesus' resurrection is. See, because John's goal in writing this whole book hasn't been just to give us another perspective, right? Another person's point of view on what Jesus said or did. But instead, at the heart of the reason why John wrote the whole gospel is that he wants us to see who Jesus really is. He wants to kind of wake us up from this kind of groggy, head-level familiarity with Jesus. And he wants to help us to see the life-transforming, spectacular reality of who Jesus claimed he was and proved himself to be. And what becomes really clear by the end of our passage this morning is is that the resurrection is essential it is this essential component to being able to see and believe the truth about jesus without the resurrection you don't have the truth about him you see but it's not just to see and believe the truth about jesus you need the resurrection john helps us to see that the resurrection is essential for living the kind of transformed lives that characterize real authentic faith in him That's because we're going to see this morning, right, that Jesus' resurrection, it's the ultimate proof that everything he said about himself is true, and it's the source of the motivation and the strength that we need to live the way he calls us to as his followers. And so as we take a look at John's account of the resurrection, that first Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, what I want to show you this morning is that the kind of life-transforming faith John wrote the whole gospel so that we might have, it hinges on on seeing and believing that jesus rose from the dead right if you if you stop at the cross you're gonna miss who jesus really is you have to see the empty tomb and i can't wait to show it to you this morning so with that in mind let's pray and we'll dive in together jesus thanks so much for you and for your word and we are so grateful this morning jesus that uh, we don't come just to remember you but we come to worship you because you are alive And so, God, as we come to see you resurrected from the tomb and the new life that you have and that you give to us, Jesus, we pray that the good news of your resurrection might become good news to us. God, cause that to happen, transform our hearts so that not only that we believe that it's true, but that we have new life that comes from trusting in your resurrected life. And so, God, I don't have any power to make that happen, but you do. And so, God, I pray for our good and so that you might be glorified by us. We pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 20. Begins this way in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday in the kind of Jewish culture, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. That's again John's way of talking about himself. And he says that they, she says that they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where that they've put him. And so Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And this is just a side note, but I love that part because you know John was a little brother. Like, I can't prove that to you. Like, it's not in the Bible, but that's the stuff little brothers write, right? They're like, I beat him this time. Yes, it was me, right? I I did it, right? So he goes on. He bent over and he looked at the strips of linen lying there, but, but he didn't go in. And Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth that was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and they saw and believed. And they still didn't understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two white angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have yet to be ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with this news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together and with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven, but if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hands. Put into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, those last two verses in the passage this morning, they're the key to understanding the whole chapter and the whole book of John. You see in verse 30, 31, right? He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. See what John's saying is that Jesus, Jesus' resurrection was one of many signs that he performed. Right? And that signs, that word signs is the word John always uses to describe Jesus' miracles. And John uses the word signs because what he wants you to see is that Jesus' miracles were not just displays of power. But rather, like billboards on the highway, they were meant to be messages that pointed you to something beyond themselves. And if you look back at chapter 2 and the very first sign Jesus performs when he turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana, you see that John tells us that the, the thing all the signs were pointing to, the thing Jesus is using them to accomplish, he says in verse 11, is to reveal his glory. See, in other words, what John wants you to see is that all these miracles that Jesus does, all these signs he performs, he does them so that you might see the magnitude and the significance of who he is, that you might see his glory. See, and what John wants you to see is that Jesus' resurrection is the last sign it's the ultimate sign. It's the greatest revelation of his glory, of who he really is, and therefore it is the climax of the whole story because it's the ultimate proof of everything Jesus said about himself. See, verse 31 goes on. It says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. See, John's saying that the He says, I could have written all kinds of stuff. I have endless stories I could tell you. But the reason I recorded all of these is so that you might believe, not just that Jesus has power, but that you might believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And by making the resurrection the climax of the whole story, what John's saying is that in order to believe the truth about who Jesus is, in order to see him rightly, you have to see him risen from the dead. See, without the resurrection, without this last sign, we will always have an insufficient, incomplete, inaccurate view of Jesus. See, and that's what all the little vignettes in this whole chapter are meant to show you in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's Peter and John, or Mary, or Thomas, or the disciples, all these little vignettes, they're meant to help you see in some way that without seeing the risen Lord, without faith in His resurrection, you don't see Him. See, and Most vividly, we see that happening with Thomas in the last section there. See, for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't with with the disciples when Jesus first revealed himself to them after his resurrection. And in spite of the fact that his ten closest friends have all told him that they've seen Jesus alive again, and in spite of the fact that that lines up with everything Jesus told them would happen, right that he would die and that he would rise again, Thomas just cannot believe it. He cannot bring himself to believe that. And I think a big part of that is because Thomas has just felt burned in that situation, right? He had put his hope in the fact that he thought Jesus was the Messiah, but like all the other false messiahs that had come before him, he died. And so in Thomas's mind there's just no way that Jesus could still that he could be the Messiah, right? He put his eggs all in the basket with Jesus and just feels like they got crushed. And so he's he's not willing to just put it back in. See, at the cross, all of Thomas's hopes had been crushed, and so he's stuck in this kind of crippling doubt. He's stuck there until he sees Jesus again. And in an instant, all that doubt that was plaguing him is transformed into the most clear, most accurate, most profound confession of who Jesus is that we get in the whole book of John. A bunch of people throughout John's gospel have said who they think Jesus is, and John saves this one to the last because it's the best one. You see, Thomas responds to Jesus', the risen, resurrected Jesus standing in front of him. He says, My Lord and my God. You see, he finally gets it. See, Thomas understands not only that Jesus is the Messiah he hoped he would be, but that he is, in fact, God himself only God can raise the dead. See, Jesus isn't just the king who'd come to rescue his people. He's the God who did the rescuing. And this last sign, the resurrection, it was the ultimate proof of it. You see, so often what happens in the world that we live in is that people like to think like, man, is teaching, that was really great. Right, we really like all the stuff about loving your neighbor, and we love all the pursuing justice stuff, and, and caring for the poor, and like we're on that team, and that stuff is great. But we don't really need any of the other stuff about like him claiming to be God, and like the resurrection from the dead. Like, like we not only do we not believe that, we don't need it. Right, that that stuff was probably just some legends that was added later. If anything, right, Jesus rose metaphorically. Right, he's alive in us spiritually. Like that, that's all that happened. Right. And yet that runs absolutely counter to everything that we see in John's gospel and to the account we see in history. You see, John and all the other gospel writers, they go to great lengths to show you that Jesus not only died a real physical death, but that he rose in a real physical body. You notice how every time Jesus is talking with people, he's like, hey, do you want to check out my hands? Right? Do you want to see the holes in me? Like, Do you want to touch? Do you want to see it? Like, he's just saying, hey, I'm, I'm here I'm not a ghost, I'm not an aberration, I'm here really with you. In Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus, when he meets the disciples in the upper room there, he, he asks them, he's like, you got any fish? I'm, I'm really hungry. I'd like something to eat. And he eats with them. You see, the gospel writers are really clear. Jesus, when he, got, when he was on the cross, he got pierced by a real sword, and real blood and real water flowed out of his side. And when he rose from the dead, it was a real body that rose. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just a metaphorical thing. Jesus really rose from the dead. That's the, uh, that is the common claim of all the gospel writers. Secondly, too, if the resurrection, if that was just some made-up thing that people kind of added later, right? then why include all the stuff about Mary and all the other women that are in the accounts of the gospels? Right, if you're making up a story about something incredible like that, right, and you want people in the ancient world to believe it really happened, the one thing you don't do is say that all of the first eyewitnesses were women. That's the one thing you don't do. Because in the ancient world, the testimony of women it wasn't even allowed in, like it wasn't even admissible in most courts. In fact, there's a there's a, a, a Greek philosopher in the second century named Celsus or and that's the, actually the evidence he used. He wrote a whole book about why Christianity could not be a thing. One of the main points of, of his argument was like, listen, they said women were the ones that were the first eyewitnesses. Like, there's no way that's true. See, and yet the reality is, is that, that we look back on it now and you just see like, that's just more evidence of its authenticity. See, the only reason you put women in the story as the first eyewitnesses, well, the only reason why you do that in the ancient world is if that's what really actually happened that's not the kind of detail you put in a made-up story but lastly and i think most importantly right again there's this idea that we don't need jesus's resurrection we just kind of need his teaching we just need his principles for life but just like look at what happened to the people who had his principles for life but didn't have the resurrection they're not living some transformed victorious life right they're defeated they're like cowering in some up like room locked with the doors locked and the windows shut right they're they're living in fear and anxiety they're not living new transformed lives right they're utterly defeated see it wasn't jesus's philosophy on life that changed them it was his resurrection from the dead that transformed their lives see before the resurrection they're cowards Right? They're all hiding in this room. They're, like, they're just like afraid for their lives. Peter wasn't even willing to admit to a servant girl that he even knew who Jesus was. And yet after the resurrection these people who are utterly afraid and cowering in fear are filled with this incredible new kind of boldness. And where once they were afraid to even be associated with Jesus, now you couldn't get them to stop talking about them no matter what you do. You see, and it, they didn't do that because it was a, some personal benefit to them, right? Like they didn't get power, they didn't get money, they didn't get prestige, they didn't get authority. Like 11 of the 12 disciples died martyrs' deaths. The 12th one, John, who wrote this gospel, church history recounts for us, he, they tried to boil him alive, but he didn't die, so they exiled him on an island by himself, Right? None of them recanted. None of them walked back the proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, it wasn't Jesus' teaching that changed them. It was his resurrection from the dead. You cannot divorce the truth about who Jesus is in his resurrection. You can't divorce that from what he said. They have to go together. See, there's mountains more evidence I could show you for the resurrection that we just do not have time to get into this morning. And if you have questions about that, like I would genuinely love to meet up with you and help you talk, talk through those things and listen to your doubts and help to show you a few things. But let me just say this for now. What all the gospel writers want to help you see is one, that faith in the resurrection is rational. Right? When you look at Peter and John The the word that John uses to describe the looking that they do at those linens, it's 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 a word that means that they examined them. It's not just that they glanced and saw, but it's that they examined the evidence. See, and that's what caused John to believe. See, he didn't just see, he didn't just look, he examined what was there. You see, faith in the resurrection is rational, but more than that, what John and the rest of the New Testamenters want you to see is that faith in the resurrection is necessary. Saving faith, transforming faith. It is rooted not just in Jesus' life and his death, but in his resurrection from the dead because that's the thing that proves who he is. See, but the resurrection doesn't just prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the divine son of God. It proves that his death accomplished the thing he said it did. You see, Jesus told his disciples that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath for their sin, that he was going to pay the penalty their mutinous rebellion against God deserved. And so that instead of living as God's enemies, they might live as his friends who are at peace with him. Did you notice how three times in the passage, whenever Jesus greets the disciples, he greets them with the word, If you've been around river city long enough you know that i don't real, regularly talk about the original languages because your translations are really good and you just don't need them most of the time but i think it's really helpful here because that word peace it means something different in the original languages than it does to us like we tend to look at that word peace and we think like peace just means kind of like harmony right it just means kind of just like everything's good like hakuna matata like everything's fine right we don't have any worries things are at peace you know, the, the word that the, that's in the Greek there and the word that's translated from Hebrew, they're, they're the kind, it's the word shalom in Hebrew. It's a kind of peace that, that refers not just to peace in situations, but it's this internal and external peace. It's personal and relational. It's physical. It's spiritual. It's this all-encompassing kind. More so, it's not just an absence of conflict or turmoil. It's not just a release from fear or anxiety. It's the presence of everything that makes flourishing possible. See, those words, shalom, it refers to a state where everything is as it should be, where everything is the way God designed it to be. Like it was when Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden in perfect relationship with him and with others. See, what John wants you to see is that this reconciling, restoring, all-consuming peace. The kind of peace Jesus offers to his disciples, it's the kind of peace that God accomplished with his death. See, that's why he tells them in verse 20, right after he says, peace be with you, right? He says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He's telling them, guys, listen, I'm the one who died for you. I'm the one who was pierced for your transgressions. And the reason I can come offering you this kind of shalom, this kind of peace is because my blood paid for it all. And the fact that I'm standing here in front of you is the proof that it really Warren Wearsby, he puts it this way. He says, the empty tomb is God's receipt. It tells us that the debt has been paid in full. You see, the peace, the resurrected Jesus comes proclaiming to them, It's the antidote to all their fear. It's the cure for their anxiety. It's the thing that overcomes all their shame. It's the proclamation that their debt has been paid, that there's no longer anything to fear in death, that Satan and sin don't have any power anymore, that they're free from guilt and shame, and they're invited back into a restored relationship with the King. See, the resurrection is the proof of who Jesus is and it's the proof of what his death accomplished. And when you see and believe that the resurrection shows us that Jesus is the Messiah, the divine second person of the Trinity, God himself, who's come to make peace between you and between God, what happens is you get a new, transformed kind of life. See, verse 31 John tells us that he's written all these things, not just so that we would believe some facts, but he goes on at the end, so that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, Ken Burns, the famous documentary filmmaker, he once said, my job as a documentarian is to bring the dead back to life. And he was talking about uh, bringing historical figures kind of back to life by telling their stories, right? Bringing them in the minds of people. And I think John would, John would agree a lot with that role, right? That the do- role of a documentary is to wake the dead. But I think John would have one big caveat. See, because John wasn't telling Jesus' story in order to bring Jesus back to life. He'd already done that himself. See, John was telling his story so that you and I might come alive finally. You see, throughout the passage we see the kind of example of what that new transformed life looks like. And I think first thing is that it's characterized by a Personal relationship with the living God. My favorite part in this whole chapter is when Mary, she's come back to the tomb and she's still devastated because not only does she think Jesus is dead, she thinks that grave robbers have come and stolen the body. And so not only is her savior dead, but now she, she can't even mourn properly. And then there's this voice that comes from behind her and she asks why she's crying and she thinks it's the gardener. Maybe he's taken the body. Until... The voice calls her by name. And at once she knows that it's not the voice of the gardener. It's the voice of the good shepherd. The one who knows her by name. And who not only laid his life down for her, but who took it back up again. And she falls at his feet. She wraps her arms around him. She's so overjoyed to see him again because he knows her. You see, so often we are tempted to relate to God like he's an employer, like he's a boss, right? And that the kind of relationship he wants with us is a business one. And that it's always based on kind of our, kind of like our performance, our return on investment. And yet the message of the gospel is not that God wants to have a business relationship with you, but that he wants to have a personal relationship with you. To the king doesn't know you by your tax ID number, Right? There's not an employee badge you have to swipe to get in with him. He knows you by name. And he calls you into a personal relationship with him as the good shepherd who loves you and died for you, who has risen so that you might not just know about him, but that you might know him personally. See, religion offers you a God that is far off and distant, and yet the gospel proclaims a God who is near. One who knows you and one who invites you to live in a relationship with him. That's new life. And that kind of new life, it produces joy in you. The kind of joy that can't be taken. Mary responds to Jesus' revelation that he's alive again. She's overjoyed to see him. The same thing is true of the disciples. right? When Jesus appears to them in the locked room, it says that they were, verse 20, they were disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. That kind of joy that they have, we read in the New Testament, it was a joy that didn't just fade in a moment. It was a joy that lasted. It was one that was deep and durable. One that could overcome... all. Kinds of situations because it wasn't based on subjective circumstances, it was based on this objective, eternal reality that Jesus overcame death, and so He can overcome anything. So they have the kind of joy that can't get taken when they lost a job, they can have the kind of joy that can't get swept away when there's pain and difficulty and sickness, they have the kind of joy that can't get swept away when. Loved ones are lost. They have the kind of joy that can't get removed when oppression and opposition comes their way. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on something that's finished, done, accomplished, something that cannot be undone. See, they have a kind of joy that can't be taken because their faith is not just rooted in Jesus' death. It's rooted in his victory over death. And if he can beat death, there is nothing he cannot overcome. See, but more than just a joy that can't be taken, we see that the disciples have—they uh, have the kind of purpose that fuels all of life. All of us, we are desperately hungry for purpose. We are all looking for meaning and significance, and we look for it in our careers and we look for it in our spouses and we look for it in our kids and our hobbies and our interests and we look for it in the causes we participate in and the people that we help and yet all of those things they never actually fulfill they might work for a little while but the best spouses die and the greatest jobs you can get fired from and the kids that you love so dearly might not turn out the way that you want them and all of that stuff is meaning and purpose that can get taken in an instant And yet Jesus calls these disciples, he gives them not just new life, but new purpose that fuels all of their lives. In verse 21, he says it this way, peace be with you as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. See what happens is we try to look for meaning and purpose in all that stuff. And what the gospel says is that you have meaning and purpose, you bring it into those things. And when you see that your identity and your purpose isn't found in what you do, but it's found in who God has made you to be and sent you to be as his ambassadors, as his kingdom, peace-bearing emissaries, then it fuels even the worst jobs with meaning and purpose. And it gives significance to pain and suffering. And it causes even the most boring and insignificant parts of your life to be filled with eternal significance. You see, if you're looking for meaning and purpose and all that other stuff, you'll never find it. But if you see that your identity is his kingdom people sent to proclaim his peace, then you bring meaning and purpose into every area of your life, the kind of meaning and purpose that can't get taken away. see, but Jesus doesn't just commission them. You have to see who he commissions. Right, some of you are like, that sounds great, but like, I do not feel qualified to do any of that. I just invite you to look at the people Jesus commissions. All right, the very first person he sends as an ambassador of his kingdom is Mary Magdalene. Luke, Luke tells us that she was a person Jesus cast seven demons out of. Right, like she had some really significant mental health issues going on. Right, And yet Jesus commissions and sends her as the very first ambassador of his kingdom. He is not limited in any way by her limitations. Look at Peter, a guy who wasn't even willing to be associated with Jesus, who's huddled up in fear and doubt and insecurity. Jesus doesn't just call out all his failures. He doesn't be like, yeah, you got that one wrong, didn't you? No, he recommissions Peter as his kingdom ambassador. Listen, God does not call the qualified. The quote always goes, right? He qualifies the called. That's how it always works with him. And if you think everyone who encounters the risen king is sent as his ambassadors with meaning and purpose that fuels all of life, but not just purpose, you're sent with his power to do it. Right? Verse 22, Jesus responds, Right, he doesn't just tell them, I'm sending you. He says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a lot more in a couple of weeks about the Holy Spirit. We skipped over a section in, in John 14 through 16 where Jesus talks a lot about that. And we're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks before we wrap up our series. But for now, what I just want you to see is that the whole book of Acts, it points out how Jesus' Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who empowers and transforms the whole world. He's the one who empowers his people to live out the mission and to be the people they could never be without him and to do the things they could never do on their own power. And Jesus says, I'm not just sending you as my ambassadors, I'm giving you everything you need to do what I've called you to. And all of it, all of it is a result of his resurrection from the dead. See, are you seeing Are you starting to see why John wants, why John is trying to, like, he's trying to articulate the resurrection is not just an optional doctrine you can kind of pick and choose. It is essential. It's essential to seeing the truth and believing the truth about who Jesus really is. And it is essential to living the kind of transformed lives that he calls us to as his people. The resurrection, it's the proof and it's the power that you need. See, what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together is the very thing that resurrection proves. It proves what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. It proves that his body and his blood that was broken and shed, it finished the work, that it made peace between us and God. And so if you put your faith in Jesus to be your Lord and your God like Thomas does, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you, go back and take communion during our time of worship. Let it be for you this joyful reminder of all that Jesus' resurrection proves he accomplished for you. But for those of you who are here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and this whole idea about the resurrection, you're like, listen, that sounds good, but I've still got some doubts. I just want you to know like you are absolutely welcome here and your questions are welcome and your doubts are welcome and we would love to help you explore more who Jesus is and what it means to trust and follow him but I'd encourage you hold off on taking communion God's not after like religious rituals and going through the motions he's after a heart that like Thomas does sees him risen ruling reigning and proclaims that he is both your lord And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and faith in him is the thing you're after. We'd love to help you find that. But as we celebrate communion together, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. To the very heart of John's gospel is not just that we would have an informational knowledge about Jesus, but that he invites us in all the stories to ask, do you know about him? Or do you believe in him? See, in Jesus' words to Thomas at the end of verse 27, there are words he speaks to all of us. Stop doubting and believe. Some of you are here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus. Maybe you've tried to follow his teaching, but you have never been transformed by the resurrection. And I think a lot of the time, the reason for that is like Thomas, we come to God with all these if statements. We come to him with all these conditions, right? We say, God, I'll believe in you if you do this for me. I'll obey if you show me that this is true. I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want. I'll believe if you answer this prayer, if you show yourself to me in this way, if you fit yourself into my box. But did you notice how, how Thomas doesn't do that? See, he actually lays down all his conditions, right? Where once he said he wouldn't believe unless he touched Jesus' wounds. Jesus shows up, he invites him to do just that, and Thomas doesn't. He doesn't. He drops all of his conditions because he sees that the sovereign, omniscient, ruling, reigning king is standing before. You see, so often what happens with our ifs and our conditions with God is that what you're really doing is you're saying, God, I'll be the one who determines if what you have to say is true. I'll be the one who decides if what you've revealed is enough. And yet that's not how it works. See, if that's the way it worked, then you would be God. See, but God's the one who you fit into. He doesn't fit into your boxes. See, and some of you are here this morning, and I need you to hear this. It is not wrong or bad to want to examine the evidence. That is not a problem. Jesus encourages that. Right? In fact, it would be foolish to not. But some of you are here and you have all these conditions and you need like Thomas to lay them down. You see, God's will either He will either be God or you will be. One pastor put it this way, Thomas needed to quit demanding explanations and instead to submit to Revelation. See, some of you are here, and that's where you're at. Others of you, you're here, though, and you're not doubting the fact that Jesus rose. But maybe the thing that you're doubting is the power and the implications of his resurrection. And that's evidenced by the fact that you are your life isn't characterized by experiencing a close relationship with him you're not characterized by a deep and durable joy you just have passing happiness and you're not living as his spirit-empowered missionary in the world instead you're just kind of cynical about everything and you feel hopeless about change in you or change in the world and i just want to encourage you this morning the good news of the resurrection that's the antidote to cynicism It's the antidote to hopelessness. One pastor I listened to, his name's Bob Thune, he put it this way. He says, there are only two possible worlds you can live in. You can live in a world where the resurrection didn't happen or one where it did. Cynicism, he says, it's the denial of the resurrection. It's the proclamation that there is no such thing as new beginnings and there wasn't that first Easter either. Cynicism is choosing to live as though the resurrection didn't happen. See, some of you are here and that's where you're at this morning. And you really believe that Jesus rose, but you have like totally lost hold of the fact that his resurrection transforms everything. You see, his resurrection means that there is always hope for new beginnings. New beginnings in your life, new beginnings in your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers, new beginnings in our country and new beginnings in our world. His resurrection is the proof that there's always hope. And I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to put your faith in what is true in the real world, the world that Jesus rose from the dead, the world where there's always hope. So whatever you're facing this morning, Jesus is the God of resurrections, little ones every day, and ultimately in the end, so there's always hope. So wherever you're at, my heart for you this morning is that the good news of Jesus' resurrection might bring you life and faith in him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful to get to come before you this morning, not to remember a legacy, but to worship the risen, reigning, living Savior. And so God, we come with hearts that are full of gladness because you give us joy that can't be taken. And we come with meaning and purpose that you give us, not looking for some to manufacture ourselves, but bringing it into every area of life. And we come knowing that your resurrection is the proof that you're God and that you, you make peace with us. And we are so grateful this morning for those realities. Might you cause the good news of the resurrection to sink deeply into our hearts so that we might believe you are God and have new life that comes in your name. Amen. Amen.